Last night, I debuted as the JV Girls High School lacrosse announcer. Ooh. So, oh, you have like a sportscaster voice. You're like, in this field. I like, welcome, welcome, welcome. Granville mm-hmm. High School. I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Colin McCormick. And I'm Elijah Fleming. And today we're talking about Orfeo Negro, or Black Orpheus, a 1959 romantic tragedy set in Rio de Janeiro during Carnival, directed by Marcel Camus. And joining us today is a very special guest I'm super excited about, Dr. Rebecca Fudo-Kennedy, Associate Professor at Denison University and the creative mind behind Classics at the Intersections. Hello, welcome, Rebecca. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm very excited. I'm so I'm sort of jealous that I didn't get to be on to do you know the cartoon versions of everything. But <laughs> <laughs> there's still time, and like, well, oh, like, yeah. so you you were one of the ones I first plugged, I think, for that when yeah, when we started yeah. doing this, I was like, I definitely want Rebecca. On the yeah, show. you wrote me, and then we like dropped the ball on it for a long. Time. I know. Well, that that happened like with everyone. We find like we're finally coming back around because like the, a similar thing happened with Joel. Where I sent him an email like sort of right away, and then I like forgot to follow up like seven months later or something. Well, well when you guys, I'll come back on when you guys finally get into your anime phase. Yeah. Yes. Oh yes. well, yes. the Thermi Romai is like floating around. We gotta Thermi talk Thermi. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah. I need to see it. I haven't watched you haven't it. Seen it? I, I have. No. I have a bootleg version from Japan that I. <gasps> oh, I might tap you for that because I can't find the, the. There's the live action movie, and I like can't find a copy. I have. Of it. I have the live action film. Oh, fantastic! Yes. I'll bleep out. I'll, I'll edit at the part where you say it's illegal. Like, um, <laughs> I, I got it from Asia now, so it's not fully booked. Oh, okay. 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 Excellent. Uh, but we'll start, actually, we'll start with, with Rebecca, with our, our opening question always is, and it's kind of a loaded question because are we always like complicated, but is, do you dig this movie? And what's your experience sort of with Black Orpheus? Yeah, I, I actually really love this movie. My favorite part of the movie is actually the opening sequence. I just, I just adore the music. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and just sort of the, I love that opening scene, right? Where you have the sort of the white statue and it's like bust through it. And, and you get this sort of vibrancy and this, I, I just really think that it's, it's a, a really clever and just, I, I just really love how that starts off. And I, I, the music is really attractive to me. And I also really like the way that they sort of filter it down into Eurydice, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you're sort of confused and, and unsure yeah. like how to deal with this environment and how they really, I think, you know, 1959, and this film is like absolutely showing explicitly the sort of type of harassment that women have mm-hmm. to endure on the street. And of course, the whole thing is, is sort of, you find out, right, is premised on this idea that she's being stalked by death, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so there's like, there's a lot of things I really love in it, particularly, but I, I just, the, that opening scene just sort of, and the music just sort of grabs you right in and pulls you in, in a way that it's like, you know, you're in for a good ride. Yeah, um, the music is one of the most, I think, note like noteworthy or memorable sort of memorable parts of this film i want to like get into that a lot i have a lot of thoughts about it i I wonder sometimes if the opening scene is actually a callback to a call out of in some Mm -hmm. ways lenny riefenstahl's olympia Hmm, the opening where they've got the 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 the, the, um myron's uh discobolus and then it sort of melds into the german athlete yeah Uh, and, and and moves in through, and it would be to me a really remarkable statement if, if it is in fact. Uh, uh, like like what you were just saying, like just that stark contrast between the kind of like bleak whiteness of the like relief, and then the like vibrant color. Because I mean, this movie, I mean, nineteen fifty nine, like color, Technicolor and stuff has been around for a while, but like yeah. a movie this colorful is, I think, noteworthy in and of itself. Vibrant, just really super vibrant. Yeah, yeah. like everybody's yeah. incredibly like the whole. Um, and then the carnival scene, especially. Uh, yeah. But I'm going to pivot uh, to Eli. What, is this was this your first time? This was my my first viewing of this movie. I, ah, I had, baby. I know. <laughs> I had heard of this movie, and it was sort of like in the the back of my head. But I don't think I had ever even watched a trailer before mm-hmm. I saw this. And so that like first scene when it when it breaks through it was kind of like I, like I jumped back. It was, it was like, Oh my gosh, this is awesome. And it's like, you know, your heart starts like beating with all of that music. And I was like, yes, 
awesome. Thank mm-hmm. you. And it was like every little part of that, the very first scene where they're like going up the hill, it's like, I want to be there. It's like, I want to be like dancing with all these people. I want to be having fun with these kids flying the kite. So yeah, I did really dig parts of this movie. And I think I I do have maybe complicated feelings about its reception maybe later, but I I love the kind of magical realism that went along with all of this and it sort of gave me like a hundred years of solitude vibes yeah it has, mm-hmm. like, i think like particularly like kind of in the end like when you get into the more mythy part of yeah. it it really becomes very like nice i i really i loved i loved the entire chase scene and i love the figure of death mm-hmm. um and i definitely want to come back and, and talk about that for sure yeah yeah he, he was a soccer player i think like athlete, right? <laughs> He's um, like, many, it, many of the actors in the film were not actually actors. Yeah, some of them were. Well, so Marpessa Dawn Eurydice, Eurydice she's actually American, like like American like born American, French. Yeah. yeah, she was born in I think Pittsburgh. Moved to France. Later married Marcel Camus, the the director. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, okay. <laughs> but, but, but like Breno Mello or Orpheus, he's Brazilian. I think some of them, there was like an experimental, I think it was played up in some of the like later reviews and critiques that it was like, these are sort of like just actual, those like people. But some of them I think were like experimental theater troupe, but some of them I think were just people. I'm looking up Adam Da Silva. He was, he was a triple jumper. Uh, <laughs> wild. Yeah. But yeah, so I had like I had a couple like talking points unless someone wants to hijack it from me. But the first was just kind of thinking about this because like Eli, I think you were getting at what I was reading about as because this I, I dig this movie too, but I think there's also this movie is I dig it in two ways. Like one, I think I just surface level enjoy the movie. But I also really dig like thinking about it, particularly now and thinking about it in terms of both sort of like film reception of classical studies all the conversations we're having now in classics and humanity sort of broadly about like race and colorism and post-colonialism and things like that and like mapping it on and then the reception looking at this movie after now it's been something like 50 years because and like one of the things that i think a lot of film critics or at least i was reading and receptions is that this film was huge when it came out. It was, it, it's won all these, won like Palme d'Or, yeah. Academy Awards and Golden Globes, BAFTAs. And it was such a, like a huge breakout film, but it was also sort of, it was primarily like, it was by an international production company. Like it's a French primarily direction production. Italian. Being sort of, yeah, an Italian. It's like French, Italian and Brazilian. And it's sort of, Primarily, it's Brazil, you know, and it exposed the wider world to a lot of sort of Brazilian culture. But then is this like a sort of reduction or is it a like, did it create a sort of stereotyping now that sort of like permeated longer? Yeah, I, I, I think some of the criticisms that I think I've also read is the sort of exoticizing of this community or just like Carnival in itself or like the sort of the Afro-Brazilian, you know, religious trends and, and uh, figures like like we're seeing at the end, sort of in the, the Hades mm-hmm. thing, and sort of is that, you know, responsibly portrayed? And like maybe today we would say no. So yeah, I, I felt a little conflicted about that toward the end. Yeah, but you know, this is, yeah, I, I would just say the one thing is that I, I'm not a person, I don't, I'm not sure if any of us are the people to judge whether oh, it was yeah. absolutely right? not like like without having that sort of actual cultural lens <laughs> to know mm-hmm. whether absolutely. it's sort of an a- accurate one. And so I think that's actually what's super interesting about it, right? Is that this is going to read to different communities in different ways. You know, and I, I have colleagues and friends who are in Brazil, but you know, they are, they're indigenous, uh, indigenous and European. They're not, you know, black Brazilian. Um, but Brazil's racial divides and racial structures actually work very differently than mm. those in the United States and, right. and other places. So it's it's an interesting thing to think about. That you, this is a film where you have to actually take it in so many different levels, and you have to actually acknowledge so much ignorance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because at the end, like if you don't know what Kendom Blay is, the whole like Haiti scene is going to be like, what is going on? Kind of. Mm-hmm. Like, That's like you're like on Google. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And and it was also like this film kind of like ex- everything to to what Rebecca just said like that's absolutely right. There's a really interesting kind of like in 
about like the different, like the way this film is received by different audiences. Like uh, Obama like, writes in his memoirs about like his mother, his, his mother was like super excited about this film. And he had this like weird, he, I, it's a sort of a long passage that I, I tracked down, but it's just like very interesting to think about like the way, like the, the, the appeal of this movie to Obama's mother versus the way it sort of, it sat uneasily with him, the way he kind of describes it in that kind of, that way. But like this film, well, not like directly, but like very soon after this film in like the 60s, Brazil's going to go through, I mean, a bunch of stuff. But this is part of this modernization of Brazil period. They move the capital from Rio to Brasilia. We're five years away from a military dictatorship. But there's a, a, a cinema movement in Brazil that happens right after the Cinema Novo that's almost kind of a reaction to this kind of thing. Yeah, I, I found the uh, quotation from Obama mm-hmm. thing that gets to it a bit, right? So he says, um, I said, quote, I suddenly realized that the depiction of the childlike blacks I was now seeing on the screen, the reverse image of Conrad's dark savages, was what my mother had carried with her to Hawaii all those years before, a reflection of the simple fantasies that had been forbidden to a white middle-class girl from Kansas, the promise of another life, warm, sensual, exotic, different. I mean, and that's also, that's his, I mean, like you were also testifying, like the different sort of racial politics and cultural structures in America versus Brazil, but the way of... Yeah. And, and, I, and I, I mean, you know, just the difference between, you know, being black in America and say someone from the Caribbean or someone from, from yeah. Brazil proper, mm-hmm. but also this idea that like, are they childlike? <laughs> I, I, I don't find the figures childlike. I, I find them actually quite rich in many ways. So I, 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 would, I would dispute this idea that they're being represented as childlike or savage. And, and, mm-hmm. and it, it's, it's a very like maybe philic kind of approach which I'm like is is open to criticism in and of itself but like there's there generally seems to be like a warmth to the way these characters are are pretty i mean particularly i'm thinking of actually like benedito and zeka and the children and like my all-time favorite scene in this movie is the very end and and also just the whole the motif with the playing to make the sunrise i just like love yes, i love yeah. that that's well, of course that's like that's a really clever way to filter in this sort of tradition of Orpheus as, right? Yeah. As, as the musician. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I, I, was just, I was just gonna build off of that just a little quickly. So that I, I think that sometimes people mistake the idea of play as childish. Mm-hmm. And this idea that there can be people in the world who can really truly enjoy play and be adults is um, for some people, they, they don't get it. And mm-hmm. I find that sad. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I think that's such that's such an important distinction, and and uh, I really love that. Yeah, because this certainly seems kind of goes like, to my idea that people who interpret, but why is it that people who read comedy for a living often give us the most boring? I, I, one of my one of my old professors told me it was like a linguistics. He's like, never go to a, a conference about like humor. You would think that they'd be like really fun because it's like people you know cracking jokes all the time, but it's like no. <laughs> it's people dissecting jokes and thus and like so I wonder how it. many film critics like, mm-hmm. like miss the point of play in, in a film like this mm-hmm. um, and the sort of joyousness of that play that that, that Carnival provides you know that prov- it provides a, an, an outlet for people who may you know living in a favela who may not have mm-hmm. the opportunities to experience you know a, a, yeah. a life that is filled with with play yeah which is such like a human desire, right? It's such a, and that energy that I feel like there was such an energy through the whole movie that really felt that sort of like feverish desire to have fun. Yeah, I mean, I, is it that scene in particular where he's going to get his guitar out of the pawn shop, yes, right? Yeah. And everybody's lined up pawning something for this, you know, they're going to go get it back later because they're going to work and they're going to make it because they have to. But for this one time, they want to have they want to have a beautiful costume. They want to have fun yeah. and they want to sort of let loose and they're willing to give up. It's all these mundane things from their lives. Like, mm-hmm. right, it's like, here's, I'm bringing in my radio. I'm bringing in, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like bringing in your appliances to see if you can get some money for it, so you can have some fun for a bit, and then you'll go buy it back later. In some ways, he has the opposite, right? Because he sells this thing that brings him joy before Carnival and is able to get it back in time for Carnival. And I just wanted to plug on you mentioned just the costumes alone, like the whole yes. and like the dresses, and then that's also that's that's what I mean. Carnival kind of does look like they have these. If you look now, I mean, now they this is a little bit before I think they built the Samba Drum, like the big sort of runway that the they, but they have these like. Incredible floats um, and all the costumes and the and the dancing and the, and the samba schools 
the way they kind of compete like that. But I mean, yeah, like we, we were talking, like the way this myth, even like with the way the Orpheus myth with the guitar, like the way this movie, I think, blends the tropes of the myth. And it's big, we should say this, this is based first on a play, although it departs in some big ways. Orfeo de Concesão, I think, is the is the play. But the way, like, the the fact that he's, like, like I like this this motif of, like, a reincarnated Orpheus. Like, there's always an Orpheus yeah. that gets passed down. Which I like also doubly because it's sort of, maybe that's just me because I kind of, I'm preferential to happy endings in some, <laughs> not always. But I like that, you know, because Orpheus, like, there's no, like, I, I, like, towards the end, I, like, almost forgot. I'm like, oh, right, Orpheus can't survive this. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, the, there's no, the, the, neither, I think the, the, the myth, the archetype that he's sort of in does not allow it. But then there's gets to be another Orpheus in, in Zeka, I think is the kid's name. Yeah. yeah. yeah, And yeah, they even say that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're Orpheus now. All right. That's you're good. Orpheus now. Like, here we go. Let's do it. And there's almost like a necessity, like the way the kid's like, there needs to be an Orpheus almost like, cause in their sense, like otherwise the sun won't rise or something like that. But it's like this yeah. sort of underlying like the necessity of, of an Orpheus figure like existing well yeah because it's like he's I think the the sort of the, the undertones that run throughout sort of not even undertones the overtones that mm-hmm. run throughout the film of sort of like sexual harassment and sort of uh that sort of a, more, a little bit uh, the sort of aggressive culture that Orpheus he's he's someone who participates in it but he is at first right represented as a little creepy but then like he sort of becomes endearing to people and you see him as a sort of harmless in his stuff except for his obvious relationship with his with Mira yeah. <laughs> which is not good but but it's this it's this idea that that he in some ways maybe resembles or, or he represents play <laughs> um, and fun and and a sort of lightheartedness but 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 the seriousness like play can be very serious it has a very important role in in the world, and and th- there needs to be an Orpheus because there needs to be that way to access that ask that part of ourselves that that he and his music and, and that, that sort of represents to people. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I, I would say sort of like, you know, this is why I sort of distinguish this idea of of play versus children childishness, right? Because play can be it's very serious uh, and important, like. What's the big thing we've all learned in lockdown that we need to get out? Yeah. <laughs> we need to, even, you know, that, 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 that little things like, you know, going for a walk or <laughs> playing, shooting hoops outside or something, right? Yes. This, somehow that, that we need this sort of thing in our lives <laughs> that, that can give us an outlet. Um, which is, I guess, you know, kind of why people, oh, how many podcasts like started? <laughs> I know. Well, mine, <laughs> mine, mine coincided very neatly, or not neatly, but very close to my 30th birthday, which I think also might have something it's to do with it. also that moment where you're sort of like rest self-realization. My, my friend texted me and he's like, you've completed the like apotheosis of like white men in their 30s. You, you're podcasting now. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah. Well, well, just wait. When you turn 40, you'll wake up one day and every bone in your body will hurt. Oh, that's all right. You'll, start, right. You're, you'll, you'll get trifocals. <laughs> oh, no. oh my gosh! Oh. I mean, it happens to the best of us. Yeah. Well, so then, do we think that like the the opposite of play is is death, and that sort of like once we when we stop playing is maybe that the the death that's that's kind of haunting us? I don't know. I mean, I think the opposite of play in this film is is the girlfriend. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mira, right? Yeah. Um, and she's supposed to stand in for the the women, the Thracian yeah, women, the, right? Yeah, um, the main ads and the the, the, the Bakins. Mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of lingering danger of um, because because you know Serafina, she's like embodiment of of, of fun and play yeah. as well. Um, I, I think I think her character is probably is actually my favorite character. I was about to say if, if I didn't already say that. If I didn't say second, but uh, Benedito right away, but like Serafina is my, my close runner up because all the yes. scenes with her are like delightful. It's so um, true. <laughs> everything with, and then, and uh, Chico, her like her boyfriend, that he's like a sailor or a soldier or something like that that yeah. comes home. And then the whole. Their, their, their relationship is a little distressing. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, she, she's, she's, she's one who like grabs, grabs life. You know, but... Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, and she's the catalyst for much yeah, of this. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say that that for it's not necessarily that I don't know if death is the opposite, but 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 that that it's really um, I don't know. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's like sort of traditional structures, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to make him marry her, right. right? And this sort of rejection of that kind of containment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and it's 
and it, it's telling. I think even it works thematically. Not both. It works like on multiple levels. Just that they set this around basically in like the day before and after, like the three days surrounding Carnival, and that like that like as like a point, you know, as a period of just like unfettering of of any sort of strictures or or structures, and just kind of like I'm losing my train of thought because my brain breaks sometimes. <laughs> But like that is is like Orpheus as this figure of play and revelry and like Dionysian type indulgence in that carnival like good like lines hand in hand with that. But then also the almost like otherworldliness and like because this is, I mean I think that this 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 movie's like not really shying away from like it's like a it's very mythic. It's very kind of almost surreal or fairy tale. It's got a magical. Elements of the whole magical realism. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and like the fact, like the death figure, like we never, we it's like it's never explained. I don't need it to be. No, exactly. I I love that it's not explained. I love that we don't really know at some point. Like, is he like a real man that is stalking her, or is he Mm -hmm. just in a costume and he's you know playing along? Even visible to others. Yeah, Yeah, because I think the kids see him or at least one of them but does again, it's just a process of of the way that children can still see mm-hmm. yes exactly yeah and he he does like i think interact a little bit with like people around but he's like hanging on the side of the ambulance or something he's like mm-hmm. not in the car and so yeah he's just this like very real feeling threat i feel like all women have had that like feeling of somebody is following me but it's also this like almost like what is following you or is it, you know, is I mean, it just, as you're talking i was just thinking about this idea too that is is this 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 feels in some ways right like a coming of age for Eurydice. So like she goes from, she's moving from sort of, if you take this sort of, sorry, I'm just like going to connect all the things that you guys have just said together um, really quickly. But That's like, why we bring of, you on because we, we get two <laughs> in our own heads. Sort of like three day period, right? Where we're transitioning, uh, you know, in and out of, of the world of play. And you have um, the children as sort of a, a lens for us to sort of view this world through and to, to view this transition through and to view the role of Orpheus through and then how she transitions from like coming here. Like this is maybe the first, someone on my farm, some man on my farm said he was going to kill me. Right. She comes, she's all in white, like including the white pumps, which like walking around on those hills with those white pumps is like a brave act. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right. But then there's that moment of course, where she, she takes off after she's had sex. Right. Because then of course she, she has sex with Orpheus and this is the, this is the move to her adultness. And then you have the scene where Serafina gives her the gold dress with the veil and she hangs, very intentionally hangs the white dress up on a door and it's sort of as a putting it away. You've put away the things of childhood, right? And you've embraced the things of adulthood. And then we have the death scene. And of course, I think this plays into a lot of the ways that myths themselves play with the act of marriage or women sexually progressing as a, a sort of death. Yeah. Um, and so she feels that adulthood and that sort of transition lingering behind her potentially only she and the children can see it because only she and the children, you know, potentially actually recognize it for what it is. But she's, she's so close now to the edge that she can't see it anymore because she's in that, mm-hmm. that transition period. And she transitions. And just like in every horror movie, every girl who has sex dies. So yep. I like <laughs> this is a movie I didn't think I was going to reference, but everything you kind of said, I don't know if you ever saw it follows has a very similar. <laughs> oh, this is a horror movie that like actually stayed with me. It uh, freaked me out, but it really. Was done with this movie made? A couple years um, ago, I'd say like. Yeah. I, I, I'd, I'd given up horror films, you know, when I yeah. was like 20. I want to say like 2017 or maybe even earlier. Yeah, maybe my children have seen it. <laughs> I have the internet right here. I suppose I could just look. <laughs> no, it, it really like sticks with that. It's like it's a sexually transmitted haunting. Oh. So it's the yeah, characters okay. who like get this haunting when they have like a one night stand. And it's this. So it's, it's playing with that sort of horror film trope but it's it's the way it's shot it feels very dreamlike like it's deliberately like that like you're not it kind of it's supposed to feel like you're in a dream and And it's disturbing (laughs) yeah but it has a very similar kind of motif there and it's just like the monster basically like it walks slowly but like unstoppably towards you and so you just see it coming 
and you can like move away, but it eventually like catches up and it's just yeah. this like And nobody else can see it. It's like it's yeah. it's it's only coming after you. <laughs> yeah. Unless yeah, you're but... in the like chain or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I also wonder, like since you since you've brought this up as well, is now now that I have a um, a new horror film to be horrified at, um, if I have ever asked to watch it. <laughs> shy away. But um, you know, the the whole catabasis for Orpheus in the film. It, it seems to me too that we're set up to like recognize that Orpheus too has now lost his innocence, right? And and his ability to play, and that he will never again be able to be really be Orpheus. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, so, he can't play. He right, can't. He can't play in both the senses. The ability of his of his of the transmission of of his spirit or whatever that the, the the music has to move on because um, he's now his in some ways a requirement of being Orpheus is joy, mm-hmm. and he's now experiencing grief. And it, can he emerge from that grief? And uh, our movie tells us, our myth tells us no. Yeah. Right? And the myth, he and never he, emerges from that grief, right? And he, yeah, he says so himself. I forget exactly what he says, but something to the effect of like, I've, you know, it's, it's I can't. Yeah. And yeah, and like that whole Katabasa scene, I, I really, I was like, getting really excited just like well like the the missing persons department it's just all the, all the, the like, oh. rooms full of paper yeah oh. and nobody's in there it just fills up with paper and yeah. there's yeah. just always paper but no people and the paper can't tell you any answers and it was like and that shot where he's walking down the staircase and it's yes. red at the bottom and oh. it's just all in the dark just all the staircases and him moving down yeah i i love that because of the the like bits of reality like if you know if you are missing somebody who you know is probably dead and sort of like what are they actually going to do you know all of this you know bureaucratic red tape um, might feel like it's just yeah it's just rooms full of paper and nobody's gonna find this person for you but it's like the the idea that like that is some sort of afterlife or underworld Mm -hmm. is horrifying it was so empty and sad and i really felt that that's like the third the third circle of hell yeah right? yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like the lost or whatever yeah, yeah i think that, i think that that scene is probably uh, and the, his interaction with the janitor is, is probably for me one of the more powerful moments in the whole grief process mm-hmm. it's because it feels helpless and completely yes. um, use, useless to even try but but I also think, I wonder if there isn't a contrast here that's being made between different cultures, right? Uh, and different sort of ways of imagining in Brazilian, uh, the way that um, in Brazil and France and Italy, like they're very different cultures, but you know, Brazil is this sort of very strange, very different uh, sort of structures, but, but paper and bureaucracy and paperwork are like, very European things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, very, very, we would call them white people things, but you know, in the 59, it's a very European thing. That and it gets you nowhere, right? It's a dead end. And that building itself is very like kind of neoclassical esque. Well, and then and then the um the what's his I don't remember his name, but the 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 guy at the morgue who's like you know if you want to leave her here as a cadaver for us to use for for learning for for the university students, mm. right? And it's from what I from my what I've been told by some of my friends who live in Brazil, right? There's there's university has been traditionally very you know European structure within within Brazil. And so I think there's something to be said for the way that it's looked pointing to a sterility, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that whole that white freezer, the like the white locker freezer room mm-hmm. where she is, is like exactly what you say, very And the paper, the stack of paper. It's, yeah. yeah. I, I wonder if also the say we we I was gonna come back to it, but even just in the scene with Eurydice's death is that it's kind of it orpheus is the one who kills her effectively right because he turns on the lights and that's what that's what does it and i was like i think i'm I'm like there's something to it there's something to this but i was like i've like yet to wrap my mind around because that like you said like like he's the the sort of he part his presence like ushering her through this journey from sort of into maturity and then and then after and then and then death but like so he's the one who sort of brings her into this world but then also is is her killer in a, in a sense well, I, would, I would go back to eli's point about who is death and what is death right i, I don't think death himself can do the killing mm-hmm. especially if he's part of the imaginary and yeah. not real um he and, can only facilitate and and lead them to the, that path mm-hmm. like he's the thing that drives her to to rio he's the thing that drives her to orpheus he's the thing that drives her to to all of these actions is that that fear right so mm-hmm. I, I i would go back to to your point eli about 
Yeah. 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 Well, and yeah, it's like she's, you know, climbing off to get away from him. And that's that's the reason why she's hanging on to it. Yeah. So I, I do wonder. Yeah. It doesn't seem like death could have actually yet done done the deed or stabbed or however, whatever we might imagine. It's like that, like prophecy determinism thing. Like if you had not done anything, would it have? Do you know anything from ancient myths or Greek tragedies? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's the Oedipus conundrum all over again like i think the thing that going back to, to sort of death and the costume and the sort of self-consciousness of the film about um him being in a costume and how we're supposed to read that is the and and also about whether or not you know he, he's real and can kill her is that the first scene when she runs away from him and orpheus finds her and she falls on him and then passes out Mm-hmm. And you see him holding a knife, right? Mm-hmm. And I wonder because I was like, did she fall on the knife? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Like, did he stab her? And now she's fainted. But Death then turns away and like takes the mask off, like mm-hmm. as he's going. And he does it the first time she sees him when she's in her Serafina's house, yeah. and he, he sees him behind the door. And as he turns, he takes the mask off. Mm-hmm. Like that's the face he shows her. But it's this very sort of fourth wall. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's about the theatricality of the moment that I'm not, that, that I think is playing, it's intent, the film is intentionally playing with, with not just myth, but with tragedy mm-hmm. um, and the performative nature of itself. But I, I, I do wonder if we're set up in that first scene where Orpheus goes to save her when he's holding the knife and holding it in a way that looks like he could have, in fact, accidentally stabbed her, mm-hmm. but doesn't. If we're Definitely. set up at that moment for like the knowledge that, that uh, he's going to be the one who does it. Right. This, oh, like tragic. Yeah. Oh, it's just so many levels. I, I think death was my favorite part of this. Yeah, I, I think the, the first time I saw that movie, um, well, I, I showed that movie. It was the first time I saw it. I, I showed mm-hmm. it to students back in 2003. Oh, yeah. What, what did they like? What did they think about it? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I was teaching, uh, oh, no, it was to the summer of 2002, maybe. Um, because I was teaching a summer mythology course, but I was teaching it at a, an extension campus for OSU, not at the main campus. And so I had like 12 students. It was for a teacher education program. And so this was one of the courses they could take to fulfill their, their secondary school requirement. And I remember showing the film as part of our, we did a lot of film because who wants to be in a trailer, you know, in the middle of nowhere, Ohio for three hours, mm-hmm. you know, twice a week in order to get the credit hours. <laughs> In the summer, right? So, yeah. so I was like, let's watch some movies. But uh, one of the students in the class was a uh, evangelical Christian who had been raised uh, homeschooled, and she had been raised to believe that anybody who wasn't Christian or didn't quote unquote know Jesus was going to hell. And this class, like, she wrote me afterwards and was said that you know that what she realized while taking this class is that how could people have know Jesus when Jesus didn't exist? <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was a sort of um <laughs> this, sort of this stumped the medieval theologians um, but <laughs> right? the, the answer is to retcon um, that they were but <laughs> yeah but i mean so you sort of think about the ways that plato and platonic thought is like incorporated into early christianity as a way to sort of circumvent this problem yeah. you know or virgil becomes, becomes yeah da- dante is like all the the cool people but, that, I, but I sort of think about that in terms of like you know showing a film like this or showing other films I, I tend to show, I tended to show form films mm-hmm. uh, as a sort of mythical reception that how, how that must have sort of been for someone who like thought that people who wrote these myths were evil. Um, <laughs> right. And then having to sort of experience it through this new lens uh, as a part of a, a, pro- a program to like get there, be able to teach high school, which she had never experienced herself. Mm-hmm. And so you sort of put this in, in line with the story line of this movie <laughs> And it's, it's I like, like where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just sort of thinking about you know this is how this film functions as a sort of coming of age and uh, sort of you know enlightenment or like or or having to traverse traverse the sort of evils in order to come out somewhere else. And I think that's where we end with the children at the end of the of the thing that life goes on and and life is still has joy in it. <laughs> and you know, will they? But will they? When will they go through this too? I, so it's just a coincidence as we were talking that I thought about, yeah, that's actually the first time I ever taught this film. I actually had a student who sort of went through this catabasis of their own. 
down. And even just like at the meta level of like what's going on with Eurydice and the characters of like they're like everything you're just saying about this like jer- like these new experiences journey into a new strange world and then coming out of it sort of at the other end. But like this film itself as a vehicle for just like how many I mean it's kind of like for the criticisms that we we or others could levy at it, but like this film just exposed people to like something totally new and, and different. Which I think is part of the part of its its sort of staying power as a film, and also yeah. it's just like all these scenes are incredibly compelling. I remember um, one of those like a clip I really really love. I really like like so Bong Joon Ho is like one of my favorite filmmakers, and that's not just like jumping on the Parasite bandwagon. I, I was here since the host, but okay, <laughs> yeah, that's me. Um, but he has there's a great like little video clip of him, and he's going to the Criterion Collection. He's getting to like pick out some DVDs for himself, and he picks out a bunch of movies, and he's like, "Oh, I saw this when this time," and like because he's just kind of like a film nerd who loves movies, which I love. And he picks out Black Orpheus, and he's like, "I remember seeing this as a kid on Korean TV when I was young," and just like oh, that yeah. kind of like the way this movie sort of like the the wings that it grew, so to speak, you know, to cop on Ovid or something, but. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I had not heard that before. That's crazy. I was going to say my other just like, there's like little parts I could just go through with like little thing, little touches I love about this movie. But one of them is just his, Orpheus's, um, his shed. When we first really hear Orpheus play, and he's in his with with uh, with the kids, and then mm-hmm. all the animals like come out. And I'm like, that's the most Orpheus thing yep. ever. Yep. Uh, yeah, I love the goat. Like hang, hangs out in his house all the time. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that puppy and the kitten. Or yeah, there's that little cat that's just like running around in the background at one point. So but goats, goats really sort of bring home the sort of um, yeah. you know because of course you get. I, I think you do get some sort of bucolic vibes right from this. Yes. Um, with, yes. with with him in particular. I remember introducing one of my students to um, Daphnis and Chloe, and, uh, mm. and and this poor student had had never seen you know fainting goats, <laughs> had, had never seen uh, goats in trees, and so I thought I had to introduce the <laughs> joys of the internet. Goats that scream <laughs> like men is my favorite. Really, <laughs> <laughs> have goats evokes Greekness. Yeah, <laughs> like the, truly. The Greek landscape, right, is is good. The goat. Uh, so I love that there's this like goat just sort of like always around. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm also, I was jumping around, so the music is, is we've, we've danced around it, but the music, part of, one of the other things is this, this movie sort of ex- exposed people to was not just, like, Brazilian sort of people and culture, but the music, and, like, this movie was, I think, a big catalyst for Bossa Nova, because it's, um, uh, Antonio Jobim, yeah, Antonio Carlos Jobim and Luis Bonfa are, who are too big, did the music, and they were, like, Bossa Nova, there's an interesting relationship between, like, samba and Bossa Nova, samba is, like, the genre I think historically it comes from like Bahia, which is like a historically sort of poorer, blacker part of Brazil. And it's got all these roots in like all these different indigenous and West African. And then Bossa Nova is like of the more commercialized, for lack of a better word. It's kind of apolitical. It's, I mean, it's elevator. It's literally like the elevator. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's being apolitical is political, right? I took a course once in college, so I'm an expert, obviously. Um, But it was about. Uh, Brazilian music, but it's talking about this kind of switch, this like bait and switch that Brazil did around the 50s and 60s, where it, it almost it, like this is a probably poor analogy, but like similar to the way like like Elvis's rock and roll was to say blues and jazz is sort of bossa has a similar relationship where it's bossa was more popular among white audiences and has like a wider sort of yeah. I, I find that really interesting because you know of course what's happening in France in 1959 and 1950s uh, generally uh, around the issues of race. I think has to be factored into this, right? Because we have, after World War II, we have the sort of big anti-racist movement from UNESCO. And mm-hmm. France essentially writes race out of its history. Like, right, race doesn't exist. It's a social, they, they took the idea of race as a social construct to mean race doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And and so like, even today, you still see repercussions of it, right? If you sort of look at what's happening in France today and their sort of rejection of American style, you know, race discussions. It's like, you gave us Foucault, it's your fault. Um, <laughs> but, but there's this, but there's, you know, this, this whole, the, the whole, the whole way that anti-racism sort of crafted itself in France as a sort of erasure and a, the invention of colorblindness, I think really sort of informs the film in ways mm-hmm. that you sort of have to be conscientious of, right? Because you do have what is this sort of like predominantly black cast then you have like right, um, it Camus himself appears in the film as the guy who, mm-hmm. who like takes isn't he he's the is he the um, 
Oh, who, what is his character? Is he the the butcher? He's Ernesto, I have that, but I'm trying to remember who that is. He's not the I clerk, is he? Portuguese shop owner or something who like yes, yes, business. with all the um he takes the women for credit, like right. I mm-hmm. mean, that's the yeah. sort of really yeah. super racialized racialized scene, and and I just wonder how much of that sort of colorblind ideology is like sort of infecting the film mm-hmm. in ways that 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 this isn't just like cultural difference, but it's actually an attempt to sort of erase race. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> throughout the film in a way that that is particularly French in that time period. Yeah. No, I think that's that's the best thought. Um I really like that. Yeah. And there's what is it? Well, there's also the other lens we kind of touched on, but there's like there is also this like extra like in addition to like race and anti-racism talking to some, but there's like the a feminist reading I think that kind of lies right over where we talk about like the fear and the that sort of dread that Eurydice inhabits and the way Orpheus in the beginning I was very unsure about how to feel about Orpheus because he's like he's openly like, hey, come on board yeah in front of his fiance in a, you know he's <laughs> like he's like he's like oh how beautiful her eyes are yeah. it's like as right. as, as Mira's like, trying to be like his fiance and you're like he doesn't yeah. want to marry you <laughs> everybody knows he doesn't want to get married yeah um, Serafina's there, like, like she's running interference the whole time. <laughs> I know. Like, From the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but I, I like, but this, that, that, that scene actually, like, that opening scene when he comes by, you know, in the, the uh, whatever you call it, those little cars that move. The trolley thing. The trolley. Yeah. 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 I live in Ohio. We don't have public transportation, so I wouldn't know a trolley if I saw one. Um, <laughs> like, what are these things that, like, that the public pays for and they move mm-hmm. wrong roads? You could just ride them and get to where you need to go. Like, between living in Ohio and Southern California, like, I wouldn't know public transportation if it hit me, if it ran in here and me over. <laughs> but that scene is, like, really disturbing, right? So she's, like, sort of bouncing around and she gets caught amongst a group of dancers who keep, like, he- hedging her off um, mm-hmm. and not letting her out of the space. And finally, an older black woman dances through and dances her mm-hmm. out of the circle and then goes back in and takes over the spot herself. But then she, like, Orpheus, you know, yells, tells her, you know, hey, beautiful, or whatever the phrase he uses, you know, get on. And she mm-hmm. does, turns away and she's like, no, right? And, and, she goes, just... and then someone else totally randomly on it, like, literally abducts her. Right, and push her on. Yeah, I was watching with my partner, and she was like, "When that happened, she's like, did that guy just like grab her onto the train? Because that's yeah, like, right? that's terrifying." <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and I think yeah, that really are not unfounded. Exactly, no. it really speaks to this, just like yeah, a very like common fear that I feel like all women have have had, and just like walking down the street, and then the more like ambiguous fear of death sort of like following that I think it really built that up for me but, but ironically right I think I think importantly actually I wouldn't say ironically I would say importantly the the, the first male figure that she engages that she doesn't um have like that she she's scared of initially and then stops is is he's blind yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Right? yeah. he can't see her and yep. so she feels released by that in some ways exactly. right she's not subject to his gaze and yeah. so, yeah. which of course also like thinking about again French cinema of the fifties and like this, I think they're they're examining this idea of of the gaze uh, and mm. how that works, right? So so I think there's there's you know there's all that stuff going on. There's also of course the film has colorism in it, right? She's she's the light skinned black woman who everyone sort of admires, right, with her white dress and and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Even though of course uh, Mira has the full Europeanized you know Maria yeah. Antoinette, uh, um. outfit. I wonder if our, maybe our, 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like contrarian or like our hot take is that this is secretly a, a horror masquerading as a tragedy. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I can go, I can get behind that. There's like, I think there's, like, there's a different version of this movie that is just a pure horror film. And I, and I think, you know, and then you sort of package it in this like really super vibrant and joyful, colorful you know, musical mm. package. Yeah. That really maybe speaks to the sort of underlying horror of life. I don't know. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's, again, like to go back to Greek tragedy, that's it. That's like, that's Baki right there. That's like um, the danger yeah, and the joy. Always, how much joy is there ever in Baki? <laughs> uh, I mean, somewhere someone's having fun. Not- <laughs> Somebody was having fun somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, we, we need the like Tom Stoppard, like, <laughs> Rosencrantz and Gilderstern, but for Baki, yeah. where it's just two people hanging out at a festival. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, yeah, oh, did you hear? The king got ripped apart. Crazy. 
I want that so much. <laughs> that's the that's the the, the little uh, home project we're gonna build. I'm just gonna yep. I'm just gonna do a top stopper for every major play in Greekish. That's a good like that'd be a good. It's like the. Like there's like a genre. I don't know how to describe it. Or like I'm thinking of like two medieval monks, but like it's not quite like that. But it's yeah, like yeah. people on the sidelines narrating like major major events, like works of literature. Or something yeah, like that. <laughs> you guys, you guys, the best in show version. Yeah. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> the, the, the commenter and the color commentary on the side. Oh, oh please. <laughs> we, oh, what's his name? Uh, Fred. Uh, God, um... Fred Willard. Fred Willard, yeah. <laughs> just the, it's like, yes. And so the, the Mayflower, the, the Mayflower Pilgrims, there is the Nina, the Pinta. Like, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> well, this brings me back to, you know, my, my debut yesterday as, as a girls, high school girls lacrosse JV announcer. It, because it was practice, there was a lot of comedy um, <laughs> going on, incidental or not. Uh, but a lot of parents yelling up from the stands like, that wasn't, that wasn't a check. What kind of call is that? Oh, oh. <laughs> and so today, one of my friends was like her daughter's, one of the more aggressive players on the team, was like, yeah, this is why I could never be the announcer. You be like, uh, what kind of call is that on Gravit? That was a clean hit. Clean hit. <laughs> and then my other friend's like, we need, we need a color commentator in addition to an announcer. I was like, I can get behind that. Yeah. I, I think this is what we need. Because who, who really cares about JV? Like, you, you need to spice it up somehow. Limitless comic potential in like, sort of low low to no stakes youth athletics and like the parents and like if I had a nickel for like in you know rec soccer or something for every like poor teenage ref who's just like volunteering from like the high school soccer team getting yelled at by some but parent his parent who is convinced that someday their kid is going to be pro and they're like eight yeah, the kids the guys just like I, I work for like eight dollars like, like, for the entire match eight dollars yeah, yep. yeah I'm like I'm just like I'm just doing this as a favor to my coach like oh, I don't need parents yelling at me right. oh my gosh right. yeah no, but I, I think there, I think there's a, there's a genre you know to be had of of this I mean it all, it all goes back to Mystery Science Theater, you know, of 2000 course. or whatever it was yes, when it yes, first yes. came out. Yeah. It came out when I was in, like, high school. I think it was when it started. But I, I think there's something to be said for, for, for a revival of that format, but with, with a, you know, different different movie type. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your, your show kind of is that. I mean, we could, like, always just, like, show clips. Like, you could, like, convert. Yeah. <laughs> I got that. I'm behind on editing. I still, we had a Quobatis episode that I was supposed to get at today, but it hasn't happened. But I, when our Spartacus episode, I got a little too trigger happy with like the I'm Spartacus quote. <laughs> and like anytime we say I'm Spartacus, I'm like, I'm Spartacus. And I put a new one in there. <laughs> uh, well, there, there's so many things you can like sound bites and things you can get off the internet these days. Yeah. You, need to, you need it just on a button. Oh, I, I, was, I was joking with someone like i really just need to invest in like a soundboard and just have like a bunch of like like a radio you know like one of those like keyboard yeah like shock jock radio types and, like, <laughs> like, just have like a billion and one fart sounds <laughs> when i was a kid casio keyboards first came out and were like a thing and um, everybody wanted one and my best friend got one for um for christmas one year i think we, i was like eight or maybe ten and the the demo song was oh, no. never gonna give you up Oh no! That's amazing. <laughs> and so there was like a period of my life where I was like, "Damn, I wish I had that Casio keyboard." I know <laughs> right? that, that, that keyboard was like thirty like, years ahead of its time. I love it. Way ahead of its time. I love it. <laughs> so something recently, I forget what it was. I saw like I saw a fantastic Rick Roll. It was on like it was on like a like a public service something or like I forget what oh, yeah. it was. I actually attempted at, at a bet from a, a friend of mine to Rick Roll the world repeatedly i i videotaped i, I recorded um interviews for a, a history channel series called clash of the gods and i was supposed to record for the zeus episode in addition to a bunch of other ones but due to some sort of flight problems and everything i didn't get there early enough to do the whole recording so we only recorded like four episodes but i had like set it all up because they give you the questions ahead of time and i had set it up for the Zeus one where they they ask you about Zeus's relationships to mortal women and I was like well you know this is a problem because you know Zeus he'll give you up he'll he'll let you down he'll run around he'll totally desert you <laughs> which are all and, the things you don't it's worse, want he like makes you cry and he says goodbye and they tell you lies <laughs> also, I, like you just, I just realized you just had you had your cake and eat it too because not only did you rickroll us you just rickrolled every person all 20 people that listened to the show <laughs> 
to rip all the world. Inception. <laughs> so delightful. <laughs> the importance of play in in this. the importance you know, of play. Demo, press demo, but demo button. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I don't know how to fall. I can't pivot from that. That's, I know. That's, we, should just, we should just end the show right here. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't. Wrap up, we, 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 we all like Black Orpheus, but we think it is a, actually a horror movie in disguise. Yes. I think that actually might be. Yes. That's, our, that's our new, like, I'm going to. Similar to the Rick Roll, it is a horror movie in disguise. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Magical realism horror movie. <laughs> I, I'm there for that. There's yeah. one final scene before I feel like to do our due diligence that we should that we should at least entertain before I let anyone go because you are my prisoner. No, I'm just, but... Like, I can leave this whenever I want. <laughs> yeah, you're true. Yeah, it's not like I like... <laughs> Rebecca's like, I could just get up and walk You're out. not the boss of just man. walk away. <laughs> I was thinking of Mac in the middle the other day too, speaking of... But I was going to say the the one scene because I just I really only have one thought that it's it, it, an observation more than anything else. But it's the actual the most famous scene in the myth where he calls out to Eurydice and and then he looks back and then when Eurydice sort of inhabits that that older woman and speaks yeah. to him and then which is fascinating. Well, the one thing that I was thinking about is that we never actually and I think this is a smart decision on the movie's part is we never hear Orpheus's song because he's singing and and people they're like sing sing to Eurydice and but he, we can't hear him over the the contemplate like all the the everything that's happening in the in the the ceremony and then in the the way they did that i thought that was i'm not sure if they if that's how it works in the play i know that the contemplate ritual is original to this movie it's not in the play i don't think i don't know exactly what happens in the play but the way like the way they work it i mean that's that's when the movie's at its most magical and then eurydice is speaking to him through this other woman i don't know if he had thoughts about that like i said i'm still i'm parts i'm piecing it together too i need to like I need I need like a film like film PhD to like tell me what the hell to make of this. <laughs> <laughs> I think I I liked the the sort of suddenness of it because I I was sort of kind of waiting for it to happen uh, like oh is is she going to be there is she going to be behind him is like she herself like the actress you know going to be there or like in spirit and and then it was like we sort of didn't know also what was going on it's like we were sort of with Orpheus and that and that kind of almost like feverish like fear moment toward the end and so I kind of like that that everything sort of felt very sudden and kind of hurried and we didn't land too much time on what he actually sings or says or anything like that I felt it, it worked with the emotion for mm-hmm. me yeah I, I actually agree I think that it actually not hearing him what well, one is that when her voice comes out it really centers her voice, yeah. right? That it's actually not about him. It's about her trying to reach back out in, in some way, right? So it sort of centers her mm-hmm. wanting to have this final moment maybe with him, this final sort of uh, way to communicate with him yeah. um, that she didn't have. And, and in some ways it's sort of, because she died in fear, right? And I think that this gives a moment for her to communicate to him not in fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but he can't let go of his fear. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and so I think that, that, that the sublimating his voice and, and, and then just allowing us to sort of read this through her. And then when we do hear his voices about how I can't let you go, I can't not look, I can't, mm-hmm. you know, not see you, that, that we sort of, in some ways, because it's his pursuit of her, right, in some ways that actually leads to her death, not just him actually pulling the trigger, but her, her the whole thing is driving her towards him and then him drive you know driving Mira and Mira driving mm-hmm. Eurydice that that you know yeah. he can't be innocent of this mm-hmm. right he can't be washed clean of of this in some ways so I kind of I, I and I think it really plays with the emotion and allows her because she's our lens right for so much of the film mm-hmm. and we see him through her eyes like when we first meet him we don't not sure if we like him or not, right? Because we see him through her fear and then we sort of get, we, he becomes endearing to us as he becomes endearing to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and also through the eyes of the children, like she and the children are the sort of mm-hmm. visual lens for us. But in this final scene, like we can't see her, but we can hear her and we can only see him, but not hear him. So I think it's a, it's a nice duality. Yeah, there. for sure. 
And I, and I think Eli is absolutely right too. This, uh, this like the way the whole thing builds the emotion of that moment. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I, yeah. That's just yes. Yes to all the above. Um, <laughs> I'm going to become a film critic after I finish my announcing career. Uh, nice. I, I, yeah. I mean, Perfect. That's, that's the beauty of through podcasting, we can all be film critics. Um, <laughs> that's really what this. That's like what this is. This is my secret. This this is my project to like secretly just get my like try my hand at film criticism through. <laughs> I really think it's much more fun to do these things in conversation than it is to sort of sit on your own and sort of no. like digest a film. There's so many things that like things that I think of as I'm listening to you guys talk about the film. I was like, Oh, I hadn't thought about that. I'm like, Oh, but now it makes sense. Like something clicks. Yeah. Right. As we sort of listen to each other. Fil- I think things like fil- films are not meant to be digested alone. They're, they're meant to be a communal experience. And so I think having a conversational style podcast instead of like writing your lonely screed for the you know, year time. <laughs> yeah. <or> <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, yeah. this is what I think one of the things I'm missing most in this pandemic, especially now is like the theater and just like, just going I know, right? and like, I just, the first, it's really, it's top of my bucket list of like the minute I'm safe to go out and, and everything's good. It's like, I want to, I don't care what, the, I'll see Sonic the Hedgehog too. Like, I don't care. Um, <laughs> I just want to sit in a theater with other human bodies and like communally experience a thing. Yep. Um, this is my daughter and I always, we used to go to movies together all the time. Mm-hmm. And like the weekend before everything shut down, we went and saw Birds of Prey, mm-hmm. right? Which was such a fun movie. And it just did not get because of, of the timing yeah. of it. Um, like, and because of the name, right? Because the, the DC universe people are just bad at marketing and stuff. I could go on a whole thing about DC movies, but I look like he's like you look like the kind of guy that would have strong opinions about comic book movies. <laughs> yeah, Bird of Prey was such a great movie. I think I enjoyed it. Um, I saw it recently. I, think. I really loved it, and but that was the last thing we saw together in a theater, and so it's like, but we have that. Like we actually like sat down and watched it together again in the living room not too long ago. Like we watched this in the theater together. <laughs> like it was like. Big important yeah, it's such a novel concept now. It truly, like, my, it changes the way you experience a thing just like, like, I think, like, the one that's most recently I can think of was when I saw, I'm so, so glad I saw A Quiet Place in a theater. And I saw it in a packed theater because I think that really sold that. It was, like, so integral because if I just saw it in my house, it'd be, like, it's quiet. But, like, being in a theater of, like, a hundred or whatever people, like, actively holding their breath. And I remember I, like, I went to, there was an Alamo really close to where I live, Alamo Draft House really close to where I live. And I got like some food. I got like a pizza or something. And I remember like holding the slice of pizza, like two inches from my mouth, mid about to take a bite, but I can't. Cause like, I like, there's no way I'm going to ruin this scene. by like, if you chew, it'll like, no. And yeah. yeah, Like, so I just like, I'm like waiting for like a minute. And like other, like I have like very fond memories of like, if going to like a good, like a screening of a film with like a good audience is so, you know, with people. Yeah. And I actually, you know, a film like Black Orpheus, I can just imagine an audience sort of like because of the sort of the way it opens and that sort of the, the sort of uh, sort of communal experience it invites because it's about communal experience, yeah. but also simultaneously about individually how people differently experience that communal that communal sort of whether it's a horror or a joy or or whatever it is or you know playfulness or it's all it's all the you know it's or fear like it's all there and so you it like gives you all these different emotions that you can tap into but it, it is about how we function in in communities right and so it's like and a film like that must have been with the with the musical scoring and that opening scene must have just been like a really good time to see mm-hmm. in a packed theater. Absolutely. <laughs> right? Yes. Yes. Right. Oh, so so our, our final thesis is uh, bring back movie theaters. Um, yes. But... <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. It's really funny because I, I just participated in a, a, a two day conference with a bunch of historians and, and classes called Cathartic History, mm-hmm. which is sort of about like can we can we use the concept of catharsis as a way to sort of think about history and the writing of history and. Uh, Sort of, I think now there is like as we're talking about this, I'm sort of thinking about the, the movie theater or thinking about you know the, sort of the theater experience, right? And and how we will tell the tales of or you know recall in our own minds the sort of history of this pandemic potentially through the sort of loss of communal cathartic experience. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh. <laughs> that's fat. Yeah, that's. I'm sorry. Okay. I went. I went into a, a, you know the nine foot side of the swimming pool on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. 
I just feel that like really, really deep in my in my soul, and, yeah. it, and it hurts. It's gonna be yeah. I I'm thinking about how we're gonna think about it. It really yeah. wraps my brain up yeah. in ways. But I need a I need a carnival. I need like a I yeah. need a raw. Well, dimension. we were promised we were promised in the presidential speech last night a Fourth of July. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A normal Fourth of July. Okay. I, I don't even do Fourth of July, right. but I might do Fourth of July just for fun. Are you? <laughs> I had like a social distance one, like where like basically like people in like my immediate bubble, just like my partner and like her roommate, basically, and like one friend <laughs> that helped them move, and then we just had like burgers in the and the, but because they're all actually they're yeah. all in the French department, most most of them are French, so it was like eat, they're like what? eat my gross food. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, no, we, I, I had, I had my screen, I had a screen porch built finally after three years of waiting because I, I didn't build it. I, I had the cement laid the summer we were at the American school together, Colin. Mm. Which, yeah, we kind of buried year. the lead. That's how Rebecca and I know each other. We met in Greece. Uh, we know each other from the American school summer program. <laughs> we're uh, um, an hour and like 20 minutes into the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I laid the cement that summer, like the summer, like right before that, the spring before that. And then I didn't build the screen porch. Till like last during quarantine, I was like, I need a screen porch now. I, I can't live without it. But I was able, I have a good friend um, who's at a nearby college. He's a Kenyan. So I'm at Denison and she's a Kenyan, which is we're like 30 minutes apart from each other. But she lives in town here with us where we live. And um, because it's an outdoor space, we could hang out <laughs> and we could all be, and, and it's huge. It's like 14 by 20 Ooh, foot screen porch. Oh, so, magical. Uh, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. So we could like we 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 get together every once in a while, just like do like snacks together and and their their young their young son who's like three like idolizes Max, mm-hmm. my spouse who Colin also knows because we did the school program together. Um, but he he's like he thinks Max is like his best friend or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is Max going to be there? Does Max wear pajamas when he sleeps? Too? <laughs> <laughs> He should just tell the three-year-old that he plays the guitar to make the sunrise. Exactly. Um, we we well we we've all taken up the guitar uh, over quarantine. So I've been learning the bass. Amazing. Um, family band. Well, we're gonna have a family band. Um, Ellie's doing drum. My daughter's a cellist, but she wants something a little bit more exciting. Drums. So she's actually she she can pick up. Well, she yeah she's gonna be the drummer. I was um, a drummer. I, I highly su- I uh, support. I got this her a drum pad to practice because I have to have the basement room drywalled before and insulated before I'll get the drum set in there. I don't want to add anything else into that room until it's drywalled and insulated. My um, parents rejoiced yeah, when she, I picked percussion as my... Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, right? Well, what's really distressing about my child, right, is that because she's a cellist and she's been playing the cello since she was 12 or 11 or something, I don't know, sixth grade. She's ninth grader now. And so she picks up the guitar. We have a regular guitar, a regular electric guitar. We have a, an acoustic bass and then a regular bass. And we have a keyboard as well. I, I want Max to do his hair like Flock of Seagulls. And- oh, yes. Do you like Flock of Seagulls? No, but I can tell you do. Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, none of our students are going to get that reference. So. Yeah, right, right. But um, Ellie picks up her picks up the guitar and she's like, oh, I'm just going to like play Nirvana. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, stop. Right? Some of us have to work it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. It's really humbling to have a child who is smarter than you, more musical than you, and more athletic. I have a cat who I'm pretty sure is smarter than me. I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, she's also a Gen Z kid, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, she also, like, keeps keeps you honest. I have to be like, she made fun of me the other day because I I texted Max with lol with a period. Well, first I say lol and not LOL, right? Which is like, just like wrong. And then I use punctuation in my text. And then I put punctuation after LOL, right? Like they're like, she's like, you're almost reaching boomerness, mom. Like, like, oh, how insulting. That's rough. Right? Right? (laughs) What was really funny, one of my colleagues was like, how, what, I, I've, I've reached that stage in being an academic, she's a colleague in history, she's like, I reached that stage in being an academic where you can't think of words that other like regular people will understand. I need a regular word for performative. And I was like, sweetie, you don't have to manage. You don't have to worry. All the high schoolers are learning per- performative activism on TikTok. Yeah. Like, they got you. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what they call the liberals. That's so true. <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> 
uh, I, 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 hang on, I have to go. I, a person in a skeleton mask just walked in the room. Um, I think I need to flee. Oh. Oh. But anyways, yeah. So we before we before we go though, Rebecca, is there anything you want to plug out there? Don't ask me to do any more talk now. <laughs> never call, never call me again. <laughs> plug um i i'm i'm sort of i'm trying to finish three books right now so i have a sabbatical in the fall um the my reward for running the museum uh is that they granted me a, a sabbatical in the fall but um yeah nothing to nothing to plug right now uh check check back with me yeah, someday no worries <laughs> no i'm like i'm like behind on like one man book, like so max and i are doing a new source book on women in the greek and roman world and we're two years late on that and that sounds like perfect <laughs> course though right like <laughs> You know, well, well, I love that my editor is more concerned about uh, the fact that I got a concussion and it impacted my ADHD, and that I, I then then like, pushing me to rush and finish this book, right? Which is great. And then I'm I'm now eight months behind on my new John Hopkins book on ancient identities and their modern receptions. <laughs> and now Jackie and I are going under contract with Rutledge for a new textbook on understanding race and ethnicity. <laughs> Ooh, yes. Um, yeah, and then there's the the well, I call it the minograph. It's a thirty thousand word historiography of the racialization of Greco Romans in nineteenth and twentieth century American scholarship. Wow, oh my <laughs> that's a lot on your plate. I'm, yeah. I'm never going to complain again. Uh, <laughs> I do it myself, though, right? I've been I, Jackie Marie and I have been doing uh, Pomodoro sessions together. I don't know if you guys have ever yes. done this, mm-hmm. but we sort of have a yeah. and there's like four and like Mat- Matthias does it with us, Hans does it with us, and a couple of other people. So we sort of keep each other honest, but Jackie and I, our goal is to help each other say no. I think it's important. It's like, you know. Yes. yes. Yeah. Very yeah. important. But I, I'm happy to say, like, I'm happy to say yes to, like, this is the biggest problem. I can never say no to grad students and undergraduate students. Like, I just finished doing, a, like, a couple of days ago, I did a, a classics day at a, a 7th through 12th grade school, right? Like, how do you say no yeah. to students, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. All right. Well, th- thank you so much thank for coming on the show. I hope so you had a, I had a great time. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, this was fun. And hopefully, you know, hopefully no one gets mad at the riff roll. <laughs> Maybe. Well, if they do, they'll, 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 they'll yell at us. So you're fine. Um, yeah, we, totally, we totally set it up if they didn't know it was coming. That's true. Yeah. That's true. That's excellent. Yeah. And uh, open invitation if you ever want to come back. If, if something ever comes up and you're like, I got a thing. To, yeah, I, I, you know, I've been. I've been working my way through a bunch of anime, so we'll have to have like we'll have to have a and, and oh, but let me know when you want to get around to tear my room. I, I can I can mail you my my copy and lend you. Yeah, uh, um, that would be amazing. Actually, we should. Eli and I are, need to. We're at a point where we need to like schedule a couple of things. But <laughs> yeah, I, I have the I have volume one of the manga as well. Awesome. Um, in English, I know that you can get the there's the animes on on Amazon, but it's really short. The anime is on Amazon, but the live action film is harder to get. Yeah, that's the one I'm having. I've been having trouble getting. My favorite part of the um, of the live action film is the representation of Adrian. Oh really? <laughs> Don't spoil it for us. Um. I know, yeah. I know. But my, but my favorite part, my actual favorite part though, is that the guy who plays the main character, right? He's Japanese, right? Mm-hmm. But he won he won the Japanese equivalent of an Oscar for this film. Really? And at his acceptance speech, he was like, "Just once, he's like, I'm so grateful for this Oscar, but this is the second Oscar I've won, and." Just once, I would actually like to win an Oscar for playing a non-European. <laughs> oh. oh no! <laughs> yeah, that's like a point in the movie where he's he's ostensibly like a Roman or whatever, and he's like everyone looks. Oh, he's, he's Japanese. Yeah. he's actually Japanese. <laughs> yeah, and he's like also tall. He's like six foot three or something like this. Mm-hmm. But he always gets cast as a European. Oh yeah. my gosh, that's wild. That's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> so in this film, he's Italian. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Hilarious. Oh. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll see you guys around. Yeah, but yes, thank you. Thank, thank you so much. So much. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>